Hello and welcome to Sustain. We're here at Fosse in Portland. I'm joined on this podcast by my very special co-host, Errol Fox. Errol, how are you doing? Special co-host. I think I've got a new nickname. Yeah, I'm good. I'm a little sleepy, but I'm good. Well, you're much better than that other co-host, Justin. Can't stand that guy. I'm just joking. Justin, I love you. I hope you're doing well. Wish you were here as we're on the West Coast. I'm never on the West Coast. It's kind of fun to be here. But of course, this isn't about me, Richard Littauer. This is about sustaining open source. So let's move straight on to our guest today. We are joined today by Eric Benner. Eric, how are you doing today? Good morning. Thank you for having me. Great to have you here. Now, Eric, you're joining us today from Georgia. So you're also here on East Coast time. Yep. Woke up really early, but you seem alert and with it. So my first question for you is, what is Mythics, the company you're working for, and why are you here at Fossey? Well, the company I work for is Mythics. They're a large public sector IT company, and they do a lot of work in the public sector space, a lot of cloud migration, but a lot of traditional legacy on-prem applications and sell and support and services around basically public sector. Public sector is like civics. That's like your federal government, your state and local governments, healthcare, higher education. We do some commercial, but the bulk of what we do is in what we call the public sector space. I have a question immediately. This is something that's been on my mind since talking to some of the folks at Dial about how civic technology is sustained, open source software is sustained. Do you find that, or is it part of your work, that the government sectors that you work with find it hard to... Uh, do you transition the open source software over to like the government departments for maintenance and support? And have you found difficulties with like departments that maybe aren't as familiar with open source, like having to go through the maintenance onboarding, I guess. <laughs> actually, we do. And we actually work. We have services around that for customers to move from what I call it, like a closed source Linux to a true open source Linux. And we have services to help customers do that because a lot of customers are using proprietary you know, legacy technology. And sometimes that's the best for the solution. But they're also moving a lot of open source. A lot of them have tried open source just for free, but often they don't have the technical skills and they need help. Like they don't know how to compile a program. Just helped a customer working for a large federal agency compile some security software because they had no idea of how to do it. Or they don't know how to tune the kernel in like in a Linux distribution. They don't know how to make changes to it because they're used to simply buying it from a vendor and then the vendor does it. And they're often they're moving to more and more open source but they also fall into a trap where they think they're buying open source and they're really not. And now they're back into buying proprietary software with an open source, that kind of wrapper it around open source. And that's a challenge they're having too, because they think they're getting open source and they're really not getting it. And then they can't do the things they want to do with it. And that's a large challenge there as well. Can you tell me what sort of circumstances that happens? Like, is that like open washing or are you talking about something else? Try not to name brand names here, but you know there are companies that might take a technology such as AWX as an example, which is an Ansible technology for like an Ansible server to centralize and manage things. Yep. And you have like one large distribution that rebrands it and adds some proprietary things, issues to it, and they sell it with another brand. And then you have another large distribution that literally takes AWX and they build their own distribution and they call it AWX and they don't add anything onto it and there's nothing proprietary to it. And they give that to customers as a, you know, for free, they don't really sell it either. It's free to use. They just pay for support, but it's the true AWX. You're not getting something that's been wrappered and changed and modified and kind of proprietarized, as I would kind of put it. And 
especially in public sector, they get confused by that and they think they're getting one thing and they get another, then they realize they're kind of stuck and they build a whole ecosystem on a technology that they can't move off of because it's not true open source where it's like free to download, free to use, free to distribute. And that becomes a challenge there. I find this kind of role that you're playing really interesting in my read of it is that it's as much technical support as it is kind of the cultural and emotional support of open source. (laughs) And I wonder what you would like to see change and more of so that it can be sustained better in these kinds of government roles. Yeah, I think with the government, it is a different role because I'm not just talking to the technical people. I'm also talking to the business people and it's also educating them and educating the whole ecosystem. I think one thing the public sector can do better is when you're buying technology, even if the vendor calls it open source, check, is it really open source? Are they doing anything proprietary to it? Are they wrapping around and modifying it where it might have started off as open source, but they've done things to it and now it's not? And I would really think that's a thing that they need to look at stronger in understanding is it truly open source or is it something that started off and they use that name open source because they hear that's good, but often they don't understand why it's good and they end up buying something that's kind of proprietary. And there's a lot of that in the news right now about it. And tomorrow should be an interesting conversation in the morning here at the conference, the first session is talking with folks from Alma, Rocky, and Oracle, which are all free and open source Linux distributions. And I know that's weird to say Rocky, Alma, and Oracle (laughs) all being free and open source. So, you know, the open source world's a little bit different than the, the other side of it. But it's kind of interesting to see how that conversation will go. So I'm curious about Mythics. Can you tell me more about how it functions? Like, what's the size of the company? In my head, I'm positioning it as similar to Red Hat in terms of very large support contracts, but that seems to be totally wrong. So can you tell me what I'm missing? We are definitely not a Red Hat, as you would. We're not a distribution as a company. We do do a lot with distributions, Linux distributions. We do a lot with Oracle, as an example. But we actually help the government procure it because what they're paying for, like example, the Oracle Linux, it's free, right? You can download it, but what you pay for is support. And a lot of government organizations have to have paid support. There's security reasons for it. There's a lot of regulatory reasons for it. And there's good reasons in public sector that you don't want somebody getting a distribution that, example, isn't going to be maintained in three years or two years. And I've seen that happen. I've had customers that have bought, have used things like Fedora and then they've realized they can't patch it anymore. And they've had to completely scrap it. I've had customers with the same thing with CentOS recently. They had CentOS Stream and they did a patch on CentOS Stream and it broke their application because it wasn't sustainable for the customer. So they had to go rip that out and replace it. But what we do as a company is we kind of help with that direction and education behind it. And then we will take commercial distribution like Oracle or even Red Hat if need be. But we focus a lot with Oracle, just the nature of the company. And we help the customers with services beyond like what Oracle would do. So we have a knowledge base for like Linux that we run called Prometheus that has a lot of how-tos because we get a lot of government employees and government contractors that just don't have a certain depth of experience. So we have a large knowledge base that they can search how to do things and it's like step-by-step directions. And then we have services where we will help them do the migration. We will teach them how to operate their systems and we'll teach them about new technology that they might not be aware of. Often in public sector, somebody might learn something like they might have learned Linux 6, right? Oracle 6, CentOS 6, Red Hat 6, whatever. And that's the skill set they know. And then now they're on systems that are like eight or nine. And there's a whole new change of how things work in there. And they don't know that because they learned one version and that's all they use. They have no exposure to the community as a whole. So we come in with our services. We call it a, it's a technology like success program. 
that we actually work to teach the customers that and we help them when they their normal support method doesn't work. So as a support level, I'm curious, what happens if something down the chain, dependencies break? Are you on the hook for fixing everything? I actually just worked with a customer where a dependency broke with Redis. And we actually worked with them around the workaround with it in order to fix it. Do you think that there's a much larger role for this sort of work going forward now that the tech stack is maturing a bit and we're ending up with more and more dependencies down the line being unmaintained and unsupported? I think it is definitely more effort for this and there's more opportunity for that issue. And we also work with commercial entities as well. I have you know some large commercial organizations that we support the same way, but we just don't do open source. We also do a lot of things outside of the, the ecosystem that are not just open source as well, but in that open source space. And even things like how to write a playbook. If you're using Ansible, of course, we use the open source. We don't get into the proprietary side of it that often, but things like that, how to write shell scripts. There's a lot of just education and teaching and enablement that people need, especially in public sector where they don't get a lot of training. And in some areas are really good. Higher education is great. They know it. They know what they're doing. It's a great place to work for them because they know it. If people there learn it, they, they live it. But you get into like a city where you have, they're trying to run off open source because the mayor and the council heard that open source was great and wonderful because it's free. And they don't realize that it takes effort to maintain and support and, and build. And then that's where we come in. This is interesting to me, although I want to pivot in my question, but just responding to what you're saying is as a person that does usability and user design in open source, it sounds like open source could be a lot more usable by a lot more people and a lot more informed by the different kinds of users that operate it, right? Especially the applications, I think. When you have the open source applications, and most of what I work with is the lower level stuff. I don't do as much in the application tier, but I work with the database, the application servers, all the way down the stack. I'll do stuff in the kernel. I've done that for years. But when you get to the application space, absolutely. A lot of the open source applications, and I've used them. I've used things like Sugar or Tiger when it was open source, and it could have used a lot of effort. And there's definitely an opportunity for these applications to improve the UI and the user experience and how things work. I actually had a conversation last night with a couple of folks and we were talking about GIMP and the challenges with that UI. And I'm like, I tried GIMP and I went back to Photoshop because it was a better UI. And that's why I stuck with Photoshop for what I do for what I use Photoshop for. Oh, this is a whole nother conversation about the usability of the programs, which you could do usability work in open source on big conversation. But back to you, I'd love to know more about how you got where you are. So for open source, I, I kind of joke about it. I was using a lot of Unix at the time, back a long time ago, and using things like Kodak Unix and Interactive Unix and SCO Unix, which we all know that if they've been around a long time, know the history of SCO and, and where they went wrong. And they've kind of gotten better as they've been reacquired and things have changed over there. And I actually got started with Linux is a distro 92, 93. It was brand new. I mean, I was installing from floppies brand new. Slackware, there's no such thing as an RPM or there's no such thing as a package file. It was all done by hand. Go download source and compile, run down your own dependencies by hand. And that's when I got started and actually got involved fairly early doing some kernel hacks that became popular, worked with a lot of programs and finding bugs and finding fixes for bugs and publishing those. And then my career changed. I changed employers and the employer back then said, you can't do any of that. It was part of their non-compete type mentality. So I got out of it for a while. And then a couple of employers later, I was able to get out and move back into being more involved with the technologies in the open source space. And 
I talk a lot about how open source helps the organization and technologies and how you can do really cool things. Again, I focus generally under the application stack, but I do a lot of security, a lot of performance. And I also mix open source and proprietary because sometimes I firm believer use the right tool for the right job. And sometimes the right tool is a proprietary database on an open source operating system. And some tools, the right tool is an open source database on an open source operating system. You know, it mixes and matches. But I think that's one thing you need to be open to in the community as well is be open to mixing and matching when it makes sense. You know, use the right tool for the right job. So I'm really curious about your opinion, government subsidizing or paying for open source as a move to say have federal regulation of the space and improve our cybersecurity as a whole. Obviously, you already work with public sector where they're mm-hmm. paying you for support contracts. But I'm curious what your thoughts are with the idea of open source being part of our shared infrastructure as a society that therefore the state should help support. It already happens today. The MITRE Corporation, which you might not be aware of, M-I-T-R-E, they do a lot of security. They're a government organization. I call them a quasi. They're public sector, but they're really, they're funded 100% by the government. And if you ever heard of a CVE for security, they maintain that database. They run that. Huh. And that's all funded by the government. The government does a ton of work that people just don't realize in the open source space because if you don't realize where they're funding it, there's a lot of grants that come out of the government for doing certain enhancements in open source. There's a lot of money that goes there. You're just not aware of where it's at. But the one thing I've seen with government too is you just can't throw money in a problem because often the money will get creatively reallocated <laughs> to other things. So I think really there when you're talking about like security, I think if you start running open source like a government program, it would very change the culture. I think it, the model now works well. I think you know potentially more grants or more ways of funding existing projects would be nice, but trying to have them take over Think about the post office. Do you want open source run like the post office? I think that's a great example where the government's taken over a company and runs it. Amtrak here in the U.S., the train system. That's another example. And I'm not saying post office is bad, but it's not as efficient as FedEx or UPS. If you look at how they, they deliver things, and I think you need a mix of it. And I think it works well with the government putting in money into higher ed. There's a lot of grants and stuff that go to colleges and universities, and they do a lot of open source development. They do a lot of security things through MITRE, through DISA. And DISA, all the security stuff that DISA does for security is published free to use. So you can go and download what are called the STIGs, which are guides on how to secure your system. And that's all for free. That's out there from the government today. So there's a lot out there. You just have to be aware of what's out there. Awesome. I have not had that answer before. So thank you so much. We are running up on time. So I want to know before we head off, where can people find you online? I am very easy to find. I blog at talesfromthedatacenter.com is my technology blog. I'm on LinkedIn, Eric, E-R-I-K, Benner, B-E-N-N-E-R. I'm also on Twitter, Eric Benner. I'm easy to find on purpose, so I don't hide or anything like that. And those are the best places to find me online. I feel like I've read Tales from the Data Center before. I um, get a lot of hits. I get yeah. twenty to 30,000 hits a month off my technology blog. Awesome. That is really cool. It's a little um, faster this month. I did a post yeah. about... Did two posts this month that have trended really well. One, I compared different versions of Java for performance. And I did another one talking about Oracle announced their main database on ARM. So I actually did a comparison of performance of ARM versus Intel for their mainline database. And both of those have been trending really well this month. Well, that's exciting. Guests, feel free to check out the show notes for direct links or just type into your favorite browser of choice, tellsomedatacenter.com. 
Eric, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you enjoy the conference. Thanks. Listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. If you're curious about FOSSI, where these were recorded, go to sfconservancy.org, to the Software Freedom Conservancy's website, where you can learn more about it. It's been really, really fun to be here and have these great conversations about free and open source software. Of course, if you've liked this podcast, please let us know. Like us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to it. Email us at podcast at sustainoss.org. Give us any thoughts or comments or queries or complaints. We would love to hear them. And of course, please tell your friends. Word of mouth is the single best way to get more listeners on this podcast. And hopefully you think that that's something we should have. If you would like to donate, you can go to Open Collective to Sustain OSS, where you can donate to the production cost for this podcast, which is not free. So that would be super, super great. And of course, you can join in the conversation yourself by going to discourse at sustainoss.org to go chat. And you can follow us on Twitter at sustainoss, on Mastodon, and I believe on Blue Sky. So thank you so much for listening and take care. Bye.